0: This podcast is made possible by the donors and members of the show if you'd like to contribute to the work we're doing for as little as five dollars a month you can receive early access to ad free episodes as well as to bonus content you won't find anywhere else to find out more visit the support tab at the we're also able to keep this show going including creation of our newsletter and responding to listener emails and voicemails with support from partners like Joel DeFore and the great people at earth tools if you're a small-scale professional market gardener permaculture practitioner or farmer you'll love their line of walk-behind tractors implements and parts from manufacturers like BCS and Grillo If you're a gardener check out their full line of high-quality hand tools including hose shovels and spades from DeWitt, SHW, Barnell, and more I chose to partner with earth tools because they're owned and operated by a small-scale farmer and his family With their hands-on experience in understanding the tools we need on our farms and in our gardens, they make high-quality tools accessible to everyone. If you're getting ready for spring planting and need to add a couple of tools to your collection, now's the time, and Earth Tools is the company to order from. Find out more about their complete line of tractors and tools at earthtools.com. This is the Permaculture Podcast, I'm Scott Mann, and you're listening to Episode 1704, Place-Based Education and the Institute of Permaculture Education for Children place-based education and the institute of permaculture education for children my friend jen mendez of permie kids sits in the host seat to talk with matt bibo of ipec about what it's like to run an alternative nature-based place-oriented school this is the first of a two-part conversation framed around the five zones of service and action for place-based social organizations in this half matt provides an introduction to himself and his work as an educator, how he left a dream of working for the Park Service to go back and study sustainable education. And then along with his wife, Kelly Hogan, started the Mother Earth School. Now, several years ago, I interviewed Kelly, so I'll include a link to that interview in the show notes. And I've really been looking forward to this conversation because I've been chasing Matt off and on for an interview. And I'm glad that Jen had the chance to sit down and talk with him. But after that introduction, Matt and Jen talk about Zone 1, the Living Laboratory, which includes the actions, efforts, and people that are taking place at Jean's Farm, the physical location that houses the Mother Earth School, and some of the work of IPEC. Then they move into Zone 2, which is demonstrating the Living Laboratory, which is how they work with groups in their local environment, whether that means in the Portland area, where Gene's Farm is, or if the team from IPEC is traveling somewhere, to ensure that they have a good and inclusive infrastructure for their educational practices. This also helps them then to scale, as needed and as appropriate, the technology necessary to deliver on the needs of the student wherever they happen to be. As someone with a background in environmental education, steeped in the work of David Orr, David Sobel, having read and been inspired by Last Child in the Woods by Richard Loew, this is a good place to start for considering how, as an educator or as a parent, we can include the natural environment in teaching our children, as well as what we can do to integrate our community and the others around us to provide a very holistic approach to teaching future generations. But before I say more about that, let's get on with Matt and Jen, and I'll join you again afterwards.
1: Hi, this is Jen from Kids, and today I'm talking with Matt Bebo from the Institute of Permaculture Education for Children, IPEC. And I'm really excited to be recording this with him to be able to share it through Scott Mann and the Permaculture Podcast and talk a little bit about the five zones of service and action for place-based and social organizations. And the idea that we have to ask ourselves a question when it comes to the work that we do. The question is, what are we trying to save if we aren't making natural places, natural spaces accessible and welcoming to our kids? And not just in the physical and place-based design sense of that question, but also from the local to global social design aspect and how it comes together. So, Matt, thank you for joining me for a conversation today and doing this recording. I would love to have you share a little bit about yourself and then also a little bit about the Institute of Permaculture Education for Children.
2: Great. Thanks so much, Jen. I really appreciate that the experience that I had was that on several occasions now, and my nieces, they're, they're getting a little bit older, and so they can describe it a little bit more to me now. There's a, a cenotus bush out in front of my mom's house in Vermont that they love to climb underneath. And it was first the, uh, my older niece who showed me this place, and I felt really, really honored to be invited into there. And in all honesty, at first... I was doing something else and I was like, okay, she wants me to do what now? Uh, she's like, Uncle Matt, Uncle Matt, come. Like I want to wanna show you the jungle. And so somewhat reluctantly I put down what I was doing. I was like, okay, Leah, you can show me. And I'm so glad I did that because she shared with me one of the most special things in her life, one of the most special places that she knows and we climb underneath and everything just kind of slows down and, I can see just in her eyes, she's really engaged. Her senses are really elevated. And she's just so thrilled to be showing me this place where you can see out, but you really can't see in. And I was instantly transported to my childhood experience of having that almost exact same type of place. So I think that children seek out these places when they're accessible. And we're not talking a lot of space here. I mean, this is just literally a shrub on the side of our house that she calls into And we were able to actually see where a couple of birds were taking shelter for the winter. And our perspective just totally gets transformed. But it was just a really magical experience. And so it lit up inside of me the feeling of wanting to make sure that as many children as possible get to have those kinds of experiences. And if they don't have them at home, I feel a sense of responsibility to help them find those places as close to where they live as possible. From my earliest memory, I've just had a really deep fondness for finding little spots in nature. Uh, One of my earliest memories is actually this little area in the side yard of the first house I lived in in Springfield, Massachusetts. Uh, We didn't have a huge yard. It was in the city, but I could kind of crawl into this little brambly area and have a refuge. It was a special place. It was removed from rest of my yard in that when I was in there I felt this really kind of magical sensation and connection and I could observe things that I wouldn't really have noticed otherwise like where the robin has her nest and those kinds of things and really carried that experience with me my whole life the process of determining what I'm going to do with a career and uh, as a professional as an adult has really always turned back to what brings me joy and what has brought me joy throughout my life has been finding these places in nature. And so my background is in environmental science and in place-based education in sustainable education. And originally, I thought that the manifestation of my passion turned into career was going to be with the National Park Service. I've shared in other interviews that my favorite book of all time was My Side of the Mountain*. And I really felt connected to the character in that story and this sense of being more a part of nature and being free from a lot of the challenges and struggles of the, not just home life in a sense, but more of like being outside and noticing all that's happening around you, finding ways to meet your own needs. And I think the, the sort of grown-up version of that desire with me has really translated into recognizing the importance and value of connection with other people. And uh, I remember that book ends with somewhat of that discovery. And so there's been this theme of having a deep connection with place, but not at the exclusion of other people and having the, the social community experiences. And so how that's translated into my work is that I left a career path in really remote places in the national parks to find work in a city, went back to school, got a degree in sustainability education from Portland State University here in Portland, Oregon, and really began to look closely at strategies for connecting children to nature in the most accessible way. And what I began to realize is that there was already a thriving and growing movement in the United States, and particularly on the West Coast, around connecting children with school gardens. And so that became part of my focus in the mid-2000s, working with schools and school gardens and educational farms. I ended up moving to an educational farm in 2004, where I ended up meeting my wife, Kelly, who is the co-founder of Mother Earth School, and began my journey transitioning from working with schools, trying to bring nature and gardens into the school grounds, to bringing schools and educational programming into natural settings. And that was a really powerful transition. It really, I think, hit home the desires, the mutual desires to want to have spaces that are rich ecologically, and also to have people be a part of that story. Because throughout my education, particularly undergraduate in environmental science and then graduate program in sustainability education, there's always this question about whether or not people are inherently a part of that natural setting, that natural environment. And what we keep finding over and over and over again is that there were really hardly any places that weren't either inhabited or influenced by a human presence. And the ones that did it really well were the ones that you really couldn't tell that that presence was there. And so I see the human presence in the natural environment as one of our greatest challenges to figure out how to have those both function well, for both of them to actually be regenerated, to be invigorated, and to thrive together. And that is the design challenge that I've been working on. And coming into deeper clarity around it being that specific design challenge, In the work that I'm doing. And so that's how I've gotten involved with this organization, the Institute of Permaculture Education for Children. Kelly and I, when we were really kind of trying to figure out how this work that we were doing with a limited number of students in an outdoor school setting with Mother Earth School, we wanted to find ways to communicate what we had been learning and observing uh, to other teachers, to other educators, so that the footprint of this work, the number of students that could be reached, the number of children that could benefit from nature-based learning and a nature connection uh, would be significantly greater than the actual number that we were directly working with. And so uh, we ended up getting teamed up with Patty Parks Wasserman through a mutual permaculture teacher connection. And Patty had been doing this very similar work in New Mexico and had a vision for training teachers and helping disseminate the skills and resources needed to help more children find nature through an educational setting. And we invited Patty to come up to Portland, I think around, gosh, uh, 2011, something like that, to run teacher training for educators in Portland, Oregon. And we've been running them ever since. And subsequently, Patty has moved up to the Pacific Northwest and lives pretty close to Portland. And we run teacher trainings every year, bringing in educators, not just from the Portland area, but from across the country and a few folks from other countries as well. And we also are managing an educational farm named Gene's Farm, where I work as my primary focus on maintaining the grounds and essentially being the land steward and improving the site to increase its value both ecologically and as an educational setting. So that's where we are.
1: I just have to say that I am completely biased and I just love the work that IPEC does. I have been to their teacher training out in Portland and I went to their advanced teacher training a few years back now. One of the things that I found really exciting and one of the reasons why I wanted to stay connected with IPEC, I wanted to support what you guys are doing. And and now, again, for full transparency, I'm part of the board is because I found what you do to be absolutely magical. What makes me so excited about what you're doing and and our conversation today is that we're talking about this importance about kids and and connecting with nature, and I think that is, in the permaculture community, a well-agreed-upon idea. But what you guys bring into it is the thinking about how you can reach more children through your teacher education programs, and you do it in a way where adults are finding that special connection with nature. With Gene's Farm, which is where your teacher training programs take place, or many of them, you do travel and, and do them other places, but the one I went to was there, and you walked into that experience, that place, and it was like I was able to transform, and I was able to reconnect with that childlike wonder that awe about the world around me. And I think that's something that's really important that as adults, we need that playful exploration and connection and to continue that as well.
2: Yeah, for sure. So uh, my family, a lot of my family lives now in Vermont, in Southern Vermont, and I have so much love for my two nieces. I don't have children of my own. I'm a stepfather. I've worked in the field of education for a long time from being a a babysitter to uh, working in a boy's home to being like a job coach and a life coach, lots of social type jobs that I've woven in and out of other environmental jobs that I've had. But when I go back to Vermont to visit my family and I see the joy and excitement that my two young nieces have, I'm really reminded why this work is so essential and really reminded that... For a lot of people, their early childhood experiences are so formative in what they're doing, and so much I think of what becomes struggle later in life, I attribute that partly to not having that connection to nature because nature is a nurturing force and obviously there's many different scales of that so I'm not romanticizing or overglorifying wild places too much, but the point being that developing comfort and familiarity with little wild places, uh, wild from the age that you're at in this case, that, I think, creates young adults and adults that want to go back to those places to relive that feeling, that sensation of being connected and, in some cases, just having some peace and quiet. In In other cases, it's to shift your senses. So part of the reason why I decided to put my career in the national parks to rest and move to the cities that I mean, we know that now more than half of the world's population lives in cities. The cities have some particular uh, constraints. People tend to not think of cities as being wild or ecologically rich. But I'll tell you it's true that you can find nature really anywhere. And the work of making sure that children who live in urban areas have access to enough of a wild space, enough of a natural area to start to get some of these feelings, to uh, develop a sense of comfort and love for these places and to know how good it feels to, to be in these places. That's something that I want to make as accessible as possible. And so really, that informs the rest of my work and I think a lot of what we're going to talk about today.
1: Children's just natural wonderment and gosh, they look around and everything is just awesome. When you see it through a child's eyes, and if you can remember back, many people are able to think back and and recall and have those experiences. Many people who are involved in this type of work, and like you relayed, that has been something that stuck with you. That sense of finding your joy and your bliss being a critical driver in then what you do and and that that early experience, being able to have that connection to place, but not just helping children have access to those places, that's a piece of it. But if you don't have the social network of intergenerational people around these children that honor and value that and support carving out the time to be able to have those experiences, the place can be there and it still may not be fully experienced. And so the work that you and and IPEC are doing, combining these things, the idea of place-based and social organizations and how there's a tie there. And I would love to hear a little bit more about what's happening on Jean's farm since it has been a couple of years since I've been there. And I think that you offer a really interesting perspective. Being an organization that has a farm, has this special place that you can help cultivate and make it into, quote unquote, a jungle for those children, for the schools that come and visit, for the adults that come for your courses as well. They, they need that jungle to explore. Having that space, having that place to be able to, to do that is really amazing and incredible. I would love to hear a little bit more about what you are doing to make that a special place. And maybe that can help us talk a little bit about the five zones of service and action.
2: Yeah, sure. And so I really consider the farm, the zone one of the work that we do in IPEC because it is it is the place that grounds us. It's where we're able to practice our work and really develop for ourselves a sense of best practice and invite people in. So just a little bit uh, on Gene's farm. Since we are talking about the work of connecting children to nature in urban settings, Gene's farm is in the city of Portland. And the land that makes up Gene's farm has been preserved by Steve Johnson, who's the current owner, and uh, generations before him, his family members. His family has lived on that land for probably getting close to 140 years, and they know the land really intimately. And so Steve and I, when we first met, uh, we shared an instant connection around, among other things being raised with a lot of exposure to nature for him. I was being able to explore the farm and the creek, and back then there were a lot more fish in the creek. He has sought to preserve that and recognized that while he can do a lot of work on his own land there to keep it uh, an ecologically thriving place, there are also other forces that impact that literally upstream the industry along Johnson Creek in the 60s and early 70s had gotten so bad that the majority of the the life in the creek had died. And so Steve took the initiative to bring together a group of people that were focused on basically bringing the the, the creek back to life. And part of what they did was to create an organization that was the precursor to what's now the Johnson Creek Watershed Council. And it's really awesome that um, there are a number of waterways, not just in Portland, but all over the country that have organizations that are focusing specifically on, on that location. And so I see Gene's Farm as this sort of interesting case because it's had a, a land steward and, and before Steve Johnson and you know, generations and his family that have been preserving this space in the city. It's rare to have an intact place like Gene's Farm in an urban environment. So I feel a really strong sense of responsibility when I do have access to one to do as good of a job as possible to keep all of the areas that we're wanting to focus on as alive as possible. And that includes not just the ecology, but again, also the the human aspect of it, how that land helps people deepen their connection to land so that wherever they may go, in their life, they've developed something there that maybe it continues to express itself. And so uh, my first involvement with Gene's Farm was actually in about 2005. Uh, Steve Johnson's mother had recently passed away, and the graduate program that I was involved in at Portland State University had leased the land to run its educational farm program, which I was getting involved in at the time. And so the farm was named after Steve's mother. Her name is Jean. And Jean's farm initially was serving public schools in the city of Portland through some work with Portland State University to make sure that in addition to having a school garden at area schools, these children also had access to an area that's sort of like the next zone out in terms of its size and what's happening there. So school grounds, tend to be a little bit limited. Having a school garden is a really great activator for getting more engaged in that outside areas of the school. And some schools are doing more with orchards or food forests. But at Gene's Farm, you know, we have chickens. We have a a good portion, a couple acres of the land are a forested wetland, and the creek flows right by there. And so there's a lot going on. So we can look at food and food systems. We can look at watershed and watershed health forest and forest ecology and all these areas, it's really potent right there. And over the years, a couple of other organizations leased the farm, and we're actively farming it, mostly through a CSA. Steve Johnson actually says that one of the first CSAs in Portland happened on this land before it was named Gene's Farm. One of the persons who helped usher this kind of new chapter into what's happening at Gene's Farm, his name is Mark Boucher-Colbert who I really respect, and I also went to college with at Portland State. He helped kind of reclaim some of the overgrowth on the farm from years of it not being really used or attended on that section to kind of getting it back to an active farm. With my background in environmental science and having a lot of friends who are in ecological restoration fields, there's uh, a bit of a tension that I want to name that exists between these sort of two perspectives on what's best for the land. And I feel like Jeans Farm is a really important place in this conversation because the surrounding areas, John's Creek Watershed, are managed and the people are doing great work to try to make sure that this is a thriving wildlife corridor and there's a bike path and walking path that runs along it. And I see hawks and eagles and herons Coming up and down this waterway all the time, coming in maybe from the Willamette River, and so it is really thriving ecological place. And part of that, I think, is because of the tending that's been done to keep those places in as good of health as possible. And part of that effort does involve the removal of invasive plants and the planting of native plants to help the ecology get back to a place where it's more diverse and there are more ecological functions a part of, of that place. And so. A lot of the efforts around there and what I kind of view as a more kind of traditional ecological restoration approach, uh, there's a pretty clear list of what's considered to be native and what's considered to be invasive, uh, what's considered to be good and what's considered to be bad. And despite all those things, there's also a difference of opinion on how much human presence is considered to be constructive and what's considered to be not desirable. And so in a lot of cases, a lot of these areas that are off the trail, it's discouraged uh, exploring them. And, you know, there there is an impact to humans interacting with the environment, and and we know that. Uh, But the question that I have is, what's the goal? Is the goal to really just assure the maximum ecological strength and vitality of these places, and by so doing, having humans, and especially children, removed from that equation or is it serving perhaps the highest function when we're actively finding ways for children to engage in those places? And not just along the trail, I'm not talking like a walking tour with the signage, I'm talking about getting underneath the tree and climbing the tree and checking out the plants and you know, playing in the stream bank, getting into the creek and experiencing that place. And I've pursued a couple of other properties in Portland area, some that are even really close to the Jeans Farm location and some of these, the city of Portland had been involved in pursuing and purchasing and incorporating into some of their ecological restoration and, and waterway restoration plans. And I've proposed collaboration in a couple cases. And when I present the educational component, so far it's kind of been met with like some reluctance and, you know, I would get the feedback that, you know, that's actually not really completely compatible with our goals for the area. And so that's something that I really uh, want to help shift. You know, when a piece of land is being preserved, especially in a city for its ecological value, and when the folks that are working on this are uh, making their little matrix on all the different services that it provides for people, and you know, there's an education line, and it says education, and then there's a little box that says kiosk, and it's like checked off. Well, the education function's been filled apparently because there's a kiosk that talks about the natural area there. To me, that really doesn't cut it. That's not nearly enough. And so what I really want to support in the work that we're doing, and uh, where Gene's Farm is sort of a model for this, one that I've been working on, that we need to make sure that the human presence, especially the children, are a, a really big factor in figuring out how we can repair a place, because we're not repairing it at the exclusion of people. We are repairing it With the intention of having those places help reestablish connection, similar to what some of us have had as children and some of us haven't had yet, to make sure that everybody gets to have that experience. And it looks different maybe than what some of the city planners imagine and worry about when they think about children interacting with the natural space, right? If you kind of imagine one or two school buses pulling off and like 30 or 60 kids getting off, all like really excitedly and you know, kind of storming down and trampling things and um, mucking up the water. Okay. Yeah. Like that's, that's a concerning scenario, but that's not what I'm talking about here either. And where the role of educators really comes in to make sure that children are engaging in these places in an appropriate way. And that's why I've been placing more and more emphasis and value on having the learning place actually be the natural place, not to have necessarily always the school trip visit to the wild place or the a natural place, but to think of ways, too, where we can actually have these places be the primary learning environment. So for about five years, I worked with Mother Earth School. Mother Earth School runs a first, second, and third grade program at Gene's Farm. Uh, we built a yurt as the classroom heated with a wood stove, and the farm is the extended classroom. You know, the yurt is one classroom, but I, when I give tours, I'm like, that apple tree is the other classroom. And the outdoor kitchen is their classroom, and that little opening in the forest is the other classroom. And these are all places of learning. And one of the goals of the learning process there is, as children are interacting and seeing their impact, the role of the educator is to make sure that there's a developing sense of stewardship and a desire to make better what we're affecting. And so, my hope and my wish is that these children are growing up understanding a couple of things: one, of these places have value; Two, that they actually impact them if they're not careful. And three, they can actually take that impact and turn it into something positive to the work that they do. And so we're designing for more than just ecological health and well-being. We're designing for the human functions as well. So at Gene's Farm, Mother Earth School is running a first, second, third-day program there. And that runs like a regular school year. And these children are having this experience every day and that's probably one of the most transformative jobs that i've had going through school year with a group of children who some the beginning of the school year they didn't have that and they didn't really know what to do with themselves without toys and in the forest and needing to wear all this ring gear and you know by the end of the year the majority of the children in the program are just so so at home and once in a while there's a child where it's really not their thing and that's okay but for the majority of the children that I've worked with, they just light up and you can see that they're just more alive. They're really alive. And the creative side of them, their imagination is just firing so intensely. And their everything is just amazing and, and full of wonder. And when I see that in children, it kind of re-stimulates that wonder and that excitement in me. And so I just want to make sure that we're keeping this going. And so my role now, Kelly and I transitioned out of Mother Earth School to really breathe more life into some of the uh, wider zones, but since we're still on Gene's Farm here, Gene's Farm, uh, which is leased by the Institute of Permaculture Education for Children, we have a number of things happening there, and Mother's Schools program is one of them. Uh, We also bring in public school groups. Uh, It hasn't been as frequent lately, but I'm really wanting to get that program going a little bit more, kind of like what it used to be, because I really want to make sure that public school children have access to places like that. And it's best when we have a developed relationship or uh, the same class coming down two, three times a season, maybe in the spring and the fall, so that children have not just enough exposure there to notice their impact and actually kind of settle into the setting and context where they are, uh, but to also get to see the change throughout the seasons and most ideally see that change year to year as well so that they begin to develop a sense of cyclical time And just get out of the sort of linear mentality of things, which I think is really important also.
1: What things do you and IPAC bump up against in ways that are both beneficial, challenging, neutral, when it comes to moving out from there? Because you're talking about right there on Gene's Farm, Zone 1. You're talking about Zone 2, these other aspects and these things that you come in contact with. But how does your work continue to connect beyond that?
2: Well, I think, uh, as you mentioned, that it's important to realize that in the case of Gene's Farm, it's surrounded by residential homes. So there are some constraints to running program down there. And so some of the considerations, certainly, for a place-based program like that are that it's actually really difficult. There are a lot of invisible structures. And also, sometimes, folks that really don't want to hear the sound of children going from down the hill in their backyard, in the case at James' Farm. And so relationship building, really essential for being able to continue the work that we're doing. We're really mindful of our impact on our neighbors. One of our neighbors purchased a share from our CSA this year, and that was really great to have that connection and to be providing for someone that lives in the immediate area. Other considerations are, of course, that it's not so difficult to bring a school group to a place like this, but to run a school program on a site like this, not very simple. And there are a lot of considerations. And it's different in every place. And one of the areas where IPEC really wants to invest in further exploration to really map out across the country, all right, what are the primary considerations for starting a program that's really based on the site? And there are the zoning considerations. There are sort of like mandatory schooling considerations and like public testing and that kind of stuff. There are considerations for, you know, impact on the neighborhood, impact on local ecology. These are all things to be taken into account. And we offer training that I'll get into in a little bit that explores kind of how we went about starting the program down there at Eugene's Farm. But you're asking me now, in a bigger picture, what are some of the considerations And constraints, and for IPEC as an organization as a whole, of course, most nonprofits can relate to feeling like they could be so much more effective if they had more access to resources. And so that really gets us into zone three, the way that I think about the work that IPEC is doing, because the term resource it implies something that you're using to build something else. And so there are certainly financial resources. But I also think that in this kind of work, and especially with a social organization, the community resources are really important to develop. And so the zone of regional advocacy, collaboration, and action is pretty essential. So for us to do what we're doing at James Farm through this organization, it wouldn't be possible if we didn't have that community support. In other words, we wouldn't be able to afford the time and the money to to make it how special it is and to keep up with uh, infrastructure and to uh, be actively uh, engaged with aspects of ecological restoration and urban organic agriculture. And so there's another social organization in Portland that I've worked with for about 12 years now that the function of this organization I feel like is essential in this work. The organization is called the City Repair Project. And what the City Repair Project has really dialed in is letting people know that they have the ability to change in a positive way the places that they live. And when you think about it, that doesn't sound like a very bold statement, but a lot of people really don't realize or recognize that they can take a more active role in designing, creating the place that they live. And it's not something really that a lot of cities are broadcasting either. Community participation and community engagement is definitely on the rise, especially in a city like Portland that has a long history of community involvement. But it's not specific to Portland. And what City Repair has been able to do is to develop this bridge between the city and the goals of the city and the desires and passions and longings of people that are the ones that are living in these different neighborhoods and communities. And so to ask those people the question, like, what do you want to create in your place? What's missing? What's lacking? What would you change? And then to provide resources and guidance to go through the process of forming an idea, sharing it with other neighbors, developing some critical mass so that it's a shared value where you live, getting resources for actual building if what you're going to be doing is an actual physical change, fundraising locally, having potlucks, navigating the city permitting process if it's going to require a permit, and then the actual building phase and being connected with building experts or design experts, not to come in and do it for you, but to really teach as they go. That's, in in a nutshell, the community building model that City Repair empowers every year over 30 groups spread out all across the city empowering them to go through that process. And what's really neat about this organization is that all of these projects that are being kind of coached along are put on the same timeline so that every spring during the same 10-day stretch, about 30 community groups, not formally organized, and we're just talking like a group of neighbors in most cases, all have the building phase of their project at the same time. So then City Repair Project can advertise and promote and publicize this as an even broader community event that a lot of people turn up for to help. And usually the exchange is that. There's no financial exchange for these projects. Usually a neighbor or somebody that hears about a project will show up early in the day and get trained up a little bit from the building expert or host that's organizing the project and learn a skill that's beneficial to know and then stay long enough to help build the project by practicing that skill. And so people are learning skills and these projects are getting the community support they need that these projects wouldn't be possible if they just had to pay somebody to come and do it for them. And so I've been involved in a lot of different aspects of the work that Seer Repair Project does. And I started out hosting projects with area public schools, helping get an outdoor classroom installed at one school. And then I've come kind of back around full circle to being on the project end of it again, and we've been hosting projects. So Gene's Farm has been one of those 30-something community projects where we're providing some education for the community on how to do these things and then people stay and help us build. So we've built our ovens and our roof structures and had a lot of help tending the gardens and doing some plantings. All of this has been possible, not because we had a lot of money to do it, but because we had a lot of people power, a lot of support to do it. So this zone three is like engaging with other organizations and helping through that engagement to accomplish the goals. So city repair is a really good example of, again, that social capacity. And there's another organization that I think has an important role. And uh, this organization is the Oregon Sustainable Agriculture Land Trust, or it's it's called OSALT for short. And this is a small-scale land trust, of course, the land trust being an organization that has as its primary goal holding the, the rights to land so that it can never be developed, so that it stays in a state of ecological integrity in perpetuity. That's what the legal structure of a land trust is designed to do. And this land trust in particular, unlike other land trusts, really does pay attention to the smaller parcels of land. But some land trusts only are focusing on really big pieces or pieces that are close to other preserved areas. O'Salt is really saying that uh, we realize that we're not really gaining open space in urban settings. So it's really essential that there are active efforts to preserve the ones that are left, in this case, for sustainable agriculture, research, and education, which is really also a unique focus floral land trust, because while it's true that we would never be able to produce all the food we need in an urban environment, again, having that exposure to it and the accessibility to it helps the overall movement of local food, organic food production, and growing food in a way where we're really mindful, and not just mindful, but actually like having as a benchmark, like, are we building soil? Are we benefiting more than just our own needs and desires here? I've been on the board of this land trust for a number of years, and while the particular land there at Gene's Farm isn't in a land trust, uh, Steve Johnson has really been the caretaker there. This land trust has, I think, maybe 10 or so properties throughout the city where the goal is that those places are made accessible, that some are food forests, some are farms for beginning farmers to really develop their practice. Some are a combination of farms and communities to people to get experience living in community and farm. And similar to the City Repair Project, OSALT isn't necessarily the one that's doing all this work. There are other entities and organizations that are essentially able to do this work because they have access to the land. And OSALT's role is to make sure that there is more access to this land. So having organizations that are looking at our urban areas, identifying parcels that could have a simultaneously ecological and educational value, and really pursuing them to, to preserve them, that's a really important effort. And depending on the city, some cities and areas are more or less active in their own acquisition process for preserving land. For example, in Portland, there's been a lot of acquisitions along Johnson Creek. So upstream from us, there have been massive restoration projects where floodplains have actually been recreated to help the creek get back to a more natural state where flood events aren't as damaging and there's uh, more edge, more habitat, and that's great. And again, I'll say it, my goal is to make sure that in so doing, we are assuring and not deterring the access to these places for children and youth to develop a connection with nature.
1: It's just very inspiring to hear how all these things that are separate pieces happening and how they're all integrated.
0: And that was my friend Jen Mendez of permikids.com sitting down with Matt Bibo to talk about the Institute of Permaculture Education for Children and what it means to create place-based, nature-immersed educational experiences. If you'd like to find out more about IPAC, they're at permaculture.us.com. If you'd like to donate to their efforts to help them continue to expand these kinds of programs and reach more families and teachers, including their teacher trainings for permaculture practitioners. There's a link in the show notes to a Facebook fundraiser that they currently have going on. Or if you use PayPal, you can reach them directly at paypal.me forward slash IPEC. What stands out for me from this conversation between Matt and Jem is just how fundamental early childhood experiences are for creating a lifelong love of nature. I know that I had that happen within my own life, Because I grew up outside all the time, camping, playing in the fields, doing some things that I shouldn't have with my friends, (laughs) as we would build forts wherever we could, and spend all kinds of time being creative and trying different things. And my personal experiences were reflected further in discussions during my program at Slippery Rock University. And one of the questions that we had was, when did we arrive at this love of nature? And... For most of us, there were 88 people in the program at the time whose responses I had access to. I only remember four or five who did not have experiences before the age of 10 that had turned them on to this love of nature and this desire to be outside, even working corporate jobs and inside for most of their adult lives. On reflection, they still cared about what it was that was going on around them, about the world at large about endangered species, about access to wild places. All of that was included in the conversation. And as I say, almost universally, this happens sometime in childhood. And so I think that programs like what IPEC is doing, what Mother Earth School, the forest schools in Europe, and some of those others that are emerging here in the United States play a vital role in helping children and adults as a result To become engaged in the world around us. And that it's important that we get outside, get to our parks, and spend time in green spaces. And green spaces are one of those things where I think that as permaculture practitioners, separate from being parents or educators, we can really help this kind of a movement because we can create forests in urban environments. We can help create gardens at schools or in backyards and make them open and inviting to others in our community. It gives us an opportunity in ways to create magic and magical experiences for people because of what it is that we already do in caring for Earth, ourselves, and each other. Through the literature that we have to create food forests or plant native gardens, we have all these opportunities available where we can make a difference just by getting our hands dirty and to invite others in. And as I say, it was one of those things for me to have experiences as a child. But another program that I think that's really important is the various educational opportunities that are available through our state parks, especially the ones, as Matt said, you know, you put up a kiosk and you can check the educational box because there's something with information. There are a ton of programs that don't depend on a kiosk, but rather have a human being running them and sharing their knowledge with visitors freely available or inexpensive for families or school groups or homeschoolers to participate in through our different parks and recreation departments here where i am in central pennsylvania we have a county-wide organization that has a calendar that's constantly full of different events from heritage and history days to animal discovery events and then also something else that's really interesting for me in pennsylvania that I'd like to know more about if you have something similar where you are, is we have state naturalists, which are actually state park employees whose entire job is to generate educational programs to be held in the different parks. Our local fellow, Ben, holds all kinds of stream walks, where you can go and get a little wet and muddy to collect different animal specimens and talk about what it is that we find and why they live there, which gives a very broad ecological discovery even though we're you know catching salamanders and tadpoles and things which are all returned to the water after they're collected we also do salamander surveys where we go and collect salamanders and then do a tally of what different species we caught and how many of each to get an idea of which ones are in the area and what their health is there are butterfly walks again doing catch and release to identify the different butterflies are in the area and at the same time to talk about what host species they're on. And I really like that program in particular because Ben holds that several times through the year at the same park. So if you go multiple times, you will get to see different butterflies through different times of the year. And all of that stuff is out there if we're interested in it. And I think it's a great place for anybody, whether we're permaculture practitioners, parents, educators, to go to these programs. Go show your support so that funding continues to be available for those kinds of programs and activities and because you can learn quite a good bit. And if you're ever looking for a program as a permaculture practitioner for you to get involved in so that you can learn more, like IPEC and what they're doing through their teacher trainings, if you're looking for educational materials for programs that you want to develop, or if you're a homeschooling family looking for materials to meet your science requirements, Or if you're looking for programs that you can take your friends and family and children to, get in touch. I have a lot of resources available through different contacts such as Jen Mendez, the folks at the Institute of Permaculture Education for Children, and everyone else all over the world. And I'm really happy to help connect you with any of those that I can. So feel free to send me an email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Give me a call, 717-827-6266. Or if you want to, write me a letter. Share some of your adventures with me. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. And as this is only half the conversation, I'll be releasing the second piece, which covers Zones 3, 4, and 5 of the Zones of Service and Action for Place-Based Social Organizations on February 28th. Until the next time, spend each day creating the world that you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.